Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in the series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jim Jordan presses on with the narrative of Joseph in a lecture called Sheaves and Stars in the New Creation. As always, check out those links down there in the show notes, particularly our link to our YouTube channel. We'd love for you to subscribe and get those weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. We really want to thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. We're in Genesis chapter 37, and we'll read again the opening of the chapter. I'll read from the Fox translation with a few modifications in the interest of accuracy. Yaakov settled in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the beginnings of Yaakov. Yosef, 17 years old, used to tend the sheep along with his brothers, for he was a serving lad or deacon with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Yosef brought a report to them, an ill one, to their father. That's the first thing that happens here. Second thing is, And Yisrael loved Yosef above all his sons, for he was the son of old age to him, and he made him a long tunic. And when his brothers saw that it was he whom their father loved above all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak to him in peace. And that's the second thing that happens. Now the third. And Yosef dreamt a dream and told it to his brothers, and they added to hate him still more. And he said to them, Pray to hear this dream that I have dreamt. Behold, we were binding sheep bundles out in the field. And behold, my sheep arose. It was standing upright. Behold, your sheaves were circling around and bowing down to my sheep. And his brothers said to him, Would you be king? Yes, king over us. Would you really rule? Yes, rule over us. And they added to hate him still more for his dreams and for his words. And now the fourth event. And he dreamt still another dream and recounted it to his brothers. And he said, Behold, I have dreamt still another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he recounted it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What kind of dream is this that you've dreamt? Shall we come? Yes, come. I, your mother, and your brothers to bow down to you to the ground. And his brothers deeply resented him, or were enraged at him, while his father kept the matter in mind. Last time, we looked at the first two events here. We discussed Joseph's position with the other brothers, that he seems to have been in charge of the sons of the handmaids, and Reuben would have been in charge of his brothers, the sons of Leah, and that in this position of authority, Joseph had brought a critical report about some of the brothers to Jacob. Probably brought a report about the ones who were under his supervision, but that would reflect bad on all of them. It would reflect bad on Reuben, who was in charge of the whole lot, and so it wouldn't make them very happy. Made the point that some of the commentators want to psychologize this text, only read it psychologically. Joseph is a tattletale. He may even have made this up. And then, of course, Jacob 
playing favorites creates this huge problem. And then Joseph, being arrogant, stupid, tells the brothers these dreams. All of this is highly speculative, and we're looking at why that approach is unhelpful. I think, for reasons that we'll get to before this hour is up, that Joseph's report is true, and it is part of the reason why Israel came to prefer him. The next thing we read is that Israel, which is Jacob's official name, loved Joseph above all the others, and he made him a long tunic. Coat of many colors is just not there in Hebrew. It means a robe that stretches to the feet or to the palms. That seems to be the meaning of it. The adjective is actually obscure. The only other time we find this phrase, a long tunic or coat of many colors, in the Septuagint and King James, is the princesses of David's house. It says that when Amnon raped Tamar, she was wearing a long tunic, which was what the princes customarily wore. So it's a sign of royalty and authority. Tunics are a part of the garments of the priests, who are, of course, over the worship in Israel. It's always a sign of authority. And so this is a sign of authority. And we ask the question, was this a stupid act on Jacob's part? And the answer is no, it is an official act on Israel's part. And the difference between Israel and Jacob is not that the name Jacob is used when this man does something stupid and wrong, and Israel is used when he does something wise, although if that were the case, it would fit here. But the name Jacob is used in the text whenever the individual man is primarily in focus, and the name Israel is used whenever his position as God's appointed leader of this community is in view. And it is Israel in his position as God-appointed leader of the community who makes this decision. And we also talked about these words love and hate. They have a specific meaning in the Bible that is not primarily emotional in content. Love means to elect, and hate means to reject. And that's why when it says Jacob hated Leah, it doesn't mean he didn't like her. It means he rejected her as being first wife, and he made Rachel the first wife because he loved Rachel. And when it says you've got to hate father and mother to be in the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean you dislike them emotionally. It means that you reject them as father and mother and adopt God as your father and the church as your mother, and your human father and mother have to be subordinate to that. Now, of course, very often... Hate does have the emotional component, but it doesn't have to. The primary meaning of it is covenant rejection, and the primary meaning of the word love is covenant election, not emotional liking. If you love your enemy, doesn't mean you have to like them. It means you have to work on ways to accept them into the covenant. So when it says the father loved Joseph, I think we have to see that this is an act of Israel selecting him above the other brothers for this position of being something of a ruler. And I think the reason for it is that Joseph is the one who tells the truth. And so Jacob responds to that. He can trust Joseph. And when he says the brothers hate him, couldn't speak to him in peace, the word peace again has objective meanings in it. It doesn't mean that every time they saw him, they screamed at him. 
after all these kids all grew up together, they were roughly the same age. Joseph and Judah were the same age. I'm sure they got along okay lots of times, but you have more than one child in the family. You know that there are times when they get into fights with each other. And this was a situation that exacerbated that. They hated him means they rejected him. They rejected this position. And they rejected him in this position. They wouldn't accept this. Of course, by the end of the passage, we get to his brothers deeply resented him. They were deeply enraged at him. Now, we've moved to strong emotional terminology when we get to verse 11. But it's only beginning here. And so that, uh, by way of review, to exonerate Jacob, Israel, from the charge of just playing favorites with his sons, and to exonerate Joseph from the charge of being a tattletale, I'm sure the other brothers viewed it that way. But in terms of the covenant, that's not what's going on. Joseph is one who tells the truth. Israel, God's representative, elects him to a special position. Oh, and one other thing, since we're reviewing, it says Israel loved Joseph because he was the son of an old age to him. Well, he wasn't, of course, the youngest son by any stretch of the imagination. There were several sons younger, and he wasn't the son of his old age. Benjamin is going to be that, although Benjamin hasn't been born yet. It says son of old age to him means he counted him and considered him a son of the old age. And we looked at that and saw this is the language used of Isaac because Isaac is born on the other side of a miracle. God has to open Sarah's womb and move her away from menopause so that she can have a child. And Isaac is born miraculously in old age. Now... Israel considers Joseph as his Isaac, not that he is the last son or a son of a much later life, but he considers him as a son of old age because, like Isaac, Joseph was born on the other side of a miracle. God had to miraculously open Rachel's womb for him to be born. And we glance at parallels between Joseph and Isaac. Jacob has a lot of parallels with Abraham. And Joseph has some parallels with Isaac. And I reminded you that there's a good connection between Isaac and Joseph, that when Joseph is in prison, Isaac dies, and it's the next year that Joseph comes out of prison and stands before Pharaoh, so that there's a close connection between the two that's behind the scenes in these texts. Well, that's review. Let's look at the third and fourth events here. These two dreams. We've got three problems, I was saying. Three problems between Joseph and his brothers. The first is he tells the truth about them. He exposes things they want to keep concealed. The second is he has been elected and put in a position of authority, and they don't accept that. And now the third problem is these two visionary dreams. There are two dreams. Later on we find this is the first of three pairs of dreams, of course, in this story. The baker and the butler have a dream, and Pharaoh has two dreams. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, as for the fact that there are two dreams and the matter is repeated, that means that it's established and God is saying, yes, I'm going to do it. Repetition forms the testimony of two witnesses. And in fact, there are loads of repetitions in this text. Reading from Fox, you can see it. Would you be king? Yes, king over us. Would you rule? Yes, rule over us. His father rebuked him and said, shall we come? Yes, come. I, your mother, and your fathers, to bow down to you to the ground. This duplication of the verb or a noun is for emphasis. And 
to establish things. In the day that you eat the fruit, dying you shall die. That's the form that's here. And there are all kinds of doubling ups of words that are not only significant in the idea of establishing something, but also relate to the meaning of the name Joseph. What does Joseph mean? He means added, one who is added. And the verb to add is used here. They added to hate him still more. We'll come to that. So this doubling up, the matter is established. Also, the fact that we have grains on the ground and stars in the sky is a witness of heaven and earth. You get over into Deuteronomy and repeatedly Moses says, I call on heaven and earth to witness against you. Heaven and earth will be the witnesses who uh, speak to you. And the reason is that humanity are the offspring of heaven and earth. Back in Genesis chapter 2, it said, These are the begettings of the heavens and the earth. And what did the heavens and the earth beget? The marriage of heaven and earth begat humanity. Man is made of the dust of the ground plus the breath of the spirit. And so the marriage of heaven and earth, the marriage of spirit and dust, makes humanity. Heaven and earth are our parents, and they are the witnesses. And so that's in the background here, land and stars. Also, of course, throughout the book of Genesis, that's been the imagery used. God says to Abraham, and he repeats it, your seed will be like the dust of the ground, like the stars of the sky. Well, dust of the ground is what sheaves of grain come out of, and of course, the stars are also there. You'll be like the stars for multitude. See if you can count up the stars and add them up. You can't. You'll also be like the stars for quality. See if you can decipher the constellations. Your seed will be like that. Both of those expressions are used in Genesis, and we'll see that there's some relevance to the constellations here. So, again, where consistent imagery is being used here for the people of God, they are like grain and stars, and now they are the ones who are going to be doing these things. I've also got down here that these dreams are not said to be from God. Although, as we read this the first time, of course, we have no idea what's going to happen. We don't know who Joseph's going to be. Maybe Joseph's going to die. Maybe Joseph's lying. We don't know yet. But we suspect that they're from God because we've read all the rest of Genesis up to this point. And, of course, it becomes clear later on that these dreams are coming from God. But the fact that we don't yet know where these dreams are from is part of the tension that is being created here. We would have to wait to find out. And Genesis is constantly telling us that the person of faith is a person who waits. Abraham waits. He waits a whole long time. Jacob waits. He waits a whole long time. Well, now, here this thing comes out. And Jacob is wise. It says his father pondered the matter. He kept the matter in mind. He waited. The other brothers, they didn't wait. They acted. They acted based on their immediate decision instead of waiting to see what might emerge out of this. But we're going to wait. We're going to slowly read the story, and we'll find out that these dreams are from God. After all, Joseph is 17. His dad has made him a deacon over half of the sons, and he's reporting on him. and now his dad gives him a coat, a seamless robe, same robe that Jesus had on and was taken off the cross. That's what this is. And so now... He's been made important, so naturally he dreams about being important. 
It's just natural. These are just psychological dreams that come out of his being made important and being given these honors. Well, we don't know. They might be. On the other hand, they might be from God. What about these two dreams? The first dream. Uh, we have a chiastic structure in the first dream. We have to notice that. It begins in verse 5. Joseph dreamt a dream and told it to his brothers. And it ends in verse 8. They added to hate him still more for his dreams and for his words. And then the second thing in the structure is they added to hate him still more. And at the end it says they added to hate him still more. And then, of course, in the center we have the dream and the response to the dream. So there's a little bit of the music of the passage here and how you would hear it. There's wordplay here. I've already mentioned the word add. That's why I changed the Fox translation slightly. And whatever translation you have before you, you at least would want to mark in the margins of your Bible that when it says they hated him more, the Hebrew verb there is Yosef. They added to hate him. And that's what Joseph means. Because when Joseph was born, his mother, Rachel, said, May the Lord add to me one more child, which God eventually will do when she gives birth to Benjamin a few years from now. So they Joseph Joseph, but they Joseph Joseph with hate. And you can't really translate in such a way as to bring that out. That's why everyone should learn Hebrew. Then you would hear it. At any rate, this is the first dream with five to follow in Genesis in which God does not also appear and speak. We've had dreams. We've had God talking to us before face to face. We've had Abraham go to sleep, and in the dream God appears to him and they discuss things, and Abraham cuts animals in half, and then he goes to sleep inside of his dream, and he sees God pass between the parts. We've had Jacob asleep and see a ladder to heaven and God talks to him. Those are dreams and visions, but they're also God talking and giving word revelation during the dream. Well, we're going to have six dreams now in which God does not appear and God does not talk. There isn't any revelation. And this is significant change in Genesis, and it foreshadows the coming of the New Testament and the completion of the Bible. Genesis, from beginning to end, gives us a snapshot of the whole history of the world. With Joseph, we get no new revelation. God never speaks to Joseph. He's going to speak to Jacob again and tell Jacob to go on down to Egypt. But to Joseph, God never speaks. Joseph has to build on what is already been given, just as we do. God isn't going to speak to us. He's given it all to us. We learn it and apply it to new situations. But the revelation has been finished. It's deposited. That's Joseph's position. The revelation is deposited, and Joseph and the people around him are going to have to interpret the things that happen in terms of what God has already said and done. Now, in a sense, we're still not completely done. I don't think we get visionary dreams either. Joseph gets visionary dreams, but how do we interpret them? How do we interpret what these sheaths out in the field are? Well, they don't have any trouble interpreting it. But it's not their imagination. It's not because they've read Left Behind or the late great planet Earth or they watch television. It's because they know everything that's in Genesis up to this point that they know what bundles of sheaf represent. They know what the sun, moon, and stars represent. Later on, 
when the baker dreams that he has bread on his head and the birds are coming and eating the bread out of the baskets? Joseph knows what that means. Because in Genesis 15, the birds coming to eat things represent the curse of the covenant. And so he knows, hey, if birds are coming to eat the bread that's on your head, that means you're about to be hung up and put to death. So Joseph interprets events and dreams based on the revelation that's already been given. I just wanted to point that out as a change because it's similar to the position that we're in after the completion of the Bible. God brings things across our path and we have to interpret those things in terms of the Bible because we're not going to have dreams and he's not going to tell us new things. Well, what happens here? Joseph's sheaf stands up straight. The others circle around and bow down to it. This is the same language used in 28, 12, and 13 where the ladder to heaven is said to stand up straight and then Jacob sees Yahweh standing up at the top of it. Same language Not language that's used constantly in Genesis, so the reference would seem to be somewhat significant. Joseph is rather like Yahweh. He's like that ladder to heaven. And the brothers are like the serving angels who are around the Lord in that image. In other words, we have a vision of something standing up straight. It's our basic ladder to heaven pyramid here with the Lord at the top. And Jacob at the bottom here, and then the next day Jacob sets up a stone and pours oil on it, representing the same thing. And now we have angels all around. And now we have Joseph's sheaf and the others around it. So the imagery is parallel, the language is parallel, and that's part of what's going on here. Joseph is the one who's going to be somewhat like the Lord, and the others are going to be around him. It says they circle and bow one at a time, basically. Each one comes before him and bows. Then the next one comes. We looked at this a little bit when we did the book of Revelation. We saw that there are 24 elders, archangels on thrones. Each one comes before the throne one at a time, puts down his crown, goes out, blows his trumpet or whatever he does, and leaves until the thrones are empty. And then the human beings occupy the thrones in Revelation chapter 20. This is how apparently things were done. There are 24 courses of priests, each one serving a week. So that's similar imagery here, sheaves coming one at a time, bowing down. The question was, these brothers would be kind of hard to accept that Joseph is going to have such an exalted position, even being like the Lord. And of course, Jesus' brothers have the same kind of problem with him. It's not until after Pentecost that they can accept it. It would be, (laughs) you grow up with somebody, and play games with them, and then... All of a sudden, they're put way over you like this. It'd be hard. And Jacob doesn't initially accept it either. He just doesn't hate him for it. The brothers, we can't fault them for not liking the idea or for having trouble with it. We can fault them for hatred. Point seven here. They say, would you be king, king over us? Would you rule? Yes, rule over us. That's your doubling for emphasis. Notice the kingship theme here at the beginning of the narrative. We've discussed this before. King theme and bread theme are both here. Joseph is going to be all about bread, and it's going to be all about ruling kings because we have moved from family to community in Genesis. When you have 12 sons, you no longer have just a family. You have the beginning of a community and a nation, and you've got to have 
something besides just fatherly leadership. You have to start having something more official and legal. And that's starting here in the Bible. It's starting here in Genesis. And here the language is explicit. It's just announced at the beginning of this narrative. The dream is prophetic in another way because the brothers are going to bow precisely in order to obtain grain. Grain is going to be what they have to come for. And when they bow down, it will be in order to get grain. And in fact, even the imagery might relate to this. The bowing of the brothers' sheaves may indicate that their grain will be humbled in the sense the famine will cause their grain to lie down in the dust while Joseph's grain stands upright and Joseph is able to provide for them. That is, in fact, what happens. Their grain dies. Their sheaves are in the ground. They don't have anything, and they have to go to Joseph, who does have lots of bread down in Egypt, whose sheaf is standing up and asking for bread. So, at several levels, this dream can be seen. But the primary thing, of course, is his authority over them, which they reject. And then we come to a second dream here. The structure of the second dream is just A-B-A-B. In verse 9, he says... He recounted it to his brothers. In verse 10 it says he recounted it to his father and his brothers. So he told this dream twice. And his father responds by rebuking him. And then in verse 11 his brothers respond with rage. His father's final response is to ponder it. So that's really the structure of the narrative. There are two problems that kind of come up with interpreting this. Really more than just two. But two in terms of persons. He sees the sun and the moon and stars bowing down to him. We know who these are. But Rachel is never going to bow down to Joseph. Rachel is going to be dead before Joseph is ever lifted up. And we don't know exactly when Leah died, but we know that she apparently died and was buried in the promised land. Whether she came down into Egypt or not, I don't think she did. I don't think she's listed. I think it's just the sons who were listed and going down to Egypt So we don't know for absolute sure. So it would seem that rather than saying the moon represents some particular person, it's rather the idea of father and mother bowing down to him, whoever would be involved. And then, of course, the other problem is that there are 11 stars and Benjamin hasn't been born yet. So there are only 10 stars at the time of the dream. We could see this as prophetic. Eventually there will be an 11th, but... As I point out below, nobody says anything about it. You would expect somebody to say, maybe they did, of course, well, there are only ten of us, so why do you see eleven stars bowing down? Who's this eleventh star? I think that the answer to these two questions are that this is simply using the imagery of the signs of the zodiac and the sun and the moon in a collective way and not necessarily in a specific way, it turns out that there are 11 constellations that Benjamin will be added in, but it hadn't happened yet. I think it's most likely that the signs of these are the signs of the zodiac through which the sun and moon move as father and mother and thus are a symbol of a whole family. That means it's the sky family. Everybody in the ancient world knew that. Now, possibly we have stars falling to the ground instead of constellations bowing down. You just have to think of a tiny little star dropping down to the ground. But if that's the case, why 11 instead of 10? If you used 11 constellations plus the sun and the moon with Joseph for 12, then everybody would know what that is. It's a package. 
But if you just got individual stars, then I think the question that they would be asking is, who's this 11th star? Because that's not part of a package, part of a system. Mere stars might seem more likely when we consider how the sun and the moon might bow. They're not constellations. They're just circles. But it does say they bow. It doesn't say they fall to the ground. If it said that, it would be no problem. I saw the sun and the moon and 12 stars fall to the ground at my feet. Well, that would have the same meaning. But that's not what he sees or recounts saying. He says they engaged in this bowing motion. Well, you've got to have a shape to do that. But the fact of the matter is, from the ancient world, modern world, the moon has a face, and the sun is pictured with wings because that's how it appears during an eclipse. You just kind of use your imagination here. During a solar eclipse, when the sun is dark, you see this corona around it. And a corona is usually mainly on the sides. There's a little bit on top. Well, that becomes, in iconography, just universal iconography, the sun with wings. That's how the sun is drawn. So they could easily have been personages of some sort representing the sun and the moon in that culture so that he could see the sun and the moon bowing down. I think it's most likely that the sun and the moon have appeared in the dream as having some kind of form that could bow down. So my conclusion is, you've got 13 images engaged in a bowing motion toward a 14th one. Sun and moon and 11 stars or constellations bowing down to Joseph, who is the other constellation. Well, so much for the details. The dream intensifies the first one. We add parents to brothers here. It's not just sheaves, but also... Stars. And father and mother are already authorities in the sky. So they wouldn't be appropriate to symbolize them as sheaves of grain. But when we move from sheaves of grain to signs of authority, they're included. Jacob rebukes him for it. The language here is not real strong. It's just, hey, what is this dream that you've dreamt? He's not called Jacob. He's just called his father. So paying close attention to where these names are used and not used. His father has no information from God and perceives this might not be a true dream. Maybe this is just an egotistical dream by a kid. But, on the other hand, Jacob has many years of experience with God and he perceives that it might, on the other hand, be real. And so, he ponders the matter. Kind of like Mary later on kept all these things in her heart and pondered on them. Well, that's what Jacob does here. Well, now I want to conclude for five minutes here just by pointing out to you that we have looked at four events in Genesis 37, and the fourth one is all about the sun, moon, and stars. And when you see that, you are entitled to ask if we're back in Genesis 1. And I think we are. I think there's a subtext here, a theme of new beginnings especially when we look at the third event in the story, which is sheaves of grain, which is right out of the third day of creation. The third day, the grain plants arose. On the fourth day, the sun, moon, and stars were created. The other events in this chapter can very easily be seen as correlating with Genesis chapter 1. So I've given you a brief list of how that is. On the first day of creation, God made light over darkness, In terms of biblical imagery, which has been established in Genesis and certainly will be established later on, 
When Joseph comes and tells the truth about his brothers, he is a light shining on something that they want to keep in darkness. And the darkness doesn't like it. The next event in Genesis, on the second day, is God sets up a firmament between heaven and earth, between waters above and waters below. And what is on the other side of the firmament is heaven, and so it's the ruling authority place. And what's on the lower side, of course, is the earth. Well, that's what happens here. The garments are a form of firmament. Repeatedly in the Bible, and including in Genesis, to put garments on is to separate yourself from someone else. I mean, husband and wife are one flesh because they don't have garments on between themselves. All the rest of us do. Joseph is separated from his brothers by a veil, and he's on the royal side of it. He's on the heaven side. It's hard for us to see how prominent this is in the Bible because our Bible doesn't translate carefully enough. The word kippur and kafar in Hebrew, I mean, we still have that word. Kippur, kafar is cover. You can hear it's the same sound. We haven't lost it. But the words kippur and kafar, which should be translated cover every single time they appear, are translated atonement, mercy seat, propitiation, all kinds of other things are translated, and so we don't see the connection. We speak about the Day of Atonement in the law. Atonement is not the meaning of the word kafar. It's the day of covering. What gets covered on that day? Well, blood is put on the cover of the ark. We say mercy seat, but the Hebrew is just cover. The ark has a cover on it that consists of a slab of gold. It represents the firmament, and blood is put on that firmament so God can see it. And that covers. And then what happens at the end of the Day of Atonement? The high priest puts back on his robes of glory, which is his covering. And so the whole idea is being covered. Being covered by the blood, having the firmament put back up so you're protected from the wrath of God. A propitiation is involved, but the precise meaning is you're covered. Blood is on the firmament, so the world is covered and protected. God is not angry, and your garments are on, so you're covered. Way back in Genesis, when God puts coverings on Adam and Eve, He's protecting them from His own wrath. So, if we could translate this word kafar, cover, every time it appeared, it would be easier for us to see these connections. But it's kind of clear here anyway. This garment separates Joseph from all his brothers. And it puts him on the royal side and them on the heaven side and them on the earth side. So that's the second event in the narrative. And it has, I think, a quite clear connection with the firmament on the second day. Then we have the vision of grain and the sun, moon, and stars. From here on, it's a little bit shadier, but it always is. But I think you can follow it on out. The next thing that we'll come to in two weeks is that Israel, again, God's man... Not Jacob the individual, but Israel as the leader. He sends Joseph to look after his brothers and the sheep in Shechem. Well, the fifth day is the day God made swarming creatures. And the first time God gives a command to anybody. Both of those things are present here. On the sixth day, man was made. And we have this odd event that we'll have to look at where Joseph encounters a man and the man sends him on to Dothan. That just seems like completely extraneous information to us, doesn't it? I mean, why not just say Jacob went out looking for them and eventually he found them in Dothan. Instead, we get he's roaming in the field 
which is significant language, and then he encounters a man, and the man tells him to go to Dothan. Who cares? Why is this here? It's not important. Unless it has some particular kind of importance that's not immediately obvious to us as 20th century readers. Well, at any rate, man is here, and then we get the Sabbath and the fall of man, which is where the brothers attack Joseph. And in terms of the imagery that I've been setting up here, you can see parallels to Genesis chapter 3. The tree of knowledge, which was forbidden to put your hand on, is the tree of rule and authority. We've looked at that enough times. Knowledge of good and evil is something kings have and children don't have. And Joseph occupies that place in an area. Joseph is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't lay your hands on him. He's the king. You don't seize what he has. Ripping off Joseph's robe is parallel to stealing from the tree of rule, the tree of knowledge. There are other things that happen in this passage that harken back to Genesis 3. An animal is killed in order to create a garment. They want to get some blood for this garment, so they kill an animal to do it. Of course, that's a twist on what happened in Genesis 3. And the major twist is, when Adam and Eve sinned, God drove them out. But now the brothers have sinned, and they've sinned against the tree of knowledge, against the ruler, but they get to stay in, and Joseph is the one driven out. And Joseph goes out, taking the punishment that they deserve. They're the ones who deserve to be thrown into a pit. They're the ones who deserve to go into exile. They're the ones who deserve to be cut off from the land. They're the ones who deserve to die. Joseph is the one who goes through all these things as their substitute, and that's what's beginning to set Joseph up as a messianic redeemer in this passage. Not just that he's killed, not just that he's driven out, but that he takes the punishment that these brothers deserve in a kind of a general way. So the allusions back to Genesis 1 I think are significant. They're not just curious. They're here because this passage is about a new beginning. These are the generations of Jacob, something new coming from him. And as we got down to the end of the previous story, the generations of Isaac, the story of Jacob, everything was falling apart in the chaos. And even though those events haven't happened yet, Reuben has not yet slept with Bilhah. Simeon and Levi have not yet murdered the men of Salem and Shechem. That hasn't happened yet. Yet We know that it's going to happen. We know that the covenant is about to fall apart and be degraded again because of sin. And so God needs to make a new beginning. And He does. The new beginning is starting here. And so it's appropriate to go back to Genesis chapter 1 to form a structure for this new beginning, new creation. So I wanted to share that with you. It will help you memorize the entire chapter. Any chapter that you can find in the Bible that follows Genesis 1, you can memorize. Because... You already know what happened in Genesis 1. You know the seven days, and all you have to do is remember that they're here. Now you can remember the seven events in this chapter. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.